Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And in our New York studio, we have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello. Dialing in from one part of the West Coast is our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Dialing from another part of the West Coast is our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Also joining us from Los Angeles once again, we have our Hollywood correspondent, Nicole Sperling. Hi, Nicole. Hi, guys. We didn't mean to spread everyone across the coast uh, this week, but it kind of turned out that way, only partly because it's holiday week. Happy Thanksgiving to anyone listening to this on their way to travels. Um, Nicole is joining us because we want to start talking first about the Governor's Awards, which are the kind of the, the technically the first Oscars of the year, like a really big schmoozing event. Nicole wrote about it for VF.com and kind of summed that up. Uh, and then after that, we'll talk about some of the movies that are out in theaters now or on their way to theaters and then share an interview with the director of one of those films, Yorgos Lanthimos, the director of The Favorite. Uh, but Nicole, We've got you here bright and early on the West Coast. Uh, your write-up of the Governor's Awards, which, again, are on VF.com, are a really fun read just for the incredible amount of boldface names that are in there. Like, there's so much name-checking to happen. Uh, for you, you talk about all the people who are being kind of cornered all night and really popular. Who would you call, like, the MVP of all the schmoozing that happens at these things? Well, I think it had to be Lady Gaga. That just the fact that Bob Iger was waiting in line to talk to her felt to me <laughs> like that was a moment. <laughs> Um, you know, she was just like, Bradley Cooper wasn't there. So she was kind of the one at the center of all the attention. And she looked fabulous as you would expect. And she was very sincere and, and enthusiastic. And it was all the things you want at the very beginning of an award season when the starlet is very happy to just be there. Well, can I say, Nicole, my theory is just that, that Lady Gaga and Bradley, like that's, that's the main story of this award season and we can dive into the weeds, you know, and we will obviously because that's our job. But like, it's worth remembering that for most people, for 80% of people, that that's what this Oscar season is going to be all about. Does that, did that seem like the case when you were there? I mean, I felt that. I felt that the presence of Star is Born was really big at the Governor's Awards. I did think it was curious that Bradley wasn't there and I kept getting the like, he just doesn't want to do these things. But that is the easiest event to do of all because, as I have said, it, it's everyone's the winner and everyone's just kind of, it's a really easy night. There's no pressure and it doesn't feel like anything else that's going to come the rest of this season. So the fact that he wasn't there to me is curious, but I do, I do agree with you. I do think the star is born is the big ticket item for this year and everything else is just kind of nipping at its heels. We should probably back up and clarify what the Governor's Awards are. You, you said that everyone's a winner and there's all of these potential Oscar uh, contenders on hand, but the actual winners are the people who are being selected for these honorary awards. So, uh, so who were those honorees and then why did all of these famous people show up to honor them? Okay, so this event has been going on for 10 years. And what they basically did, it was the Academy's attempt to take the honorary Oscars that they used to give out during the show out of the show, the telecast, to make the telecast go somehow faster. It didn't make the telecast go faster, but what they've done is they've taken these awards that used to be given out in a televised event and moved them offline. And what that has done is it's it's an event, it happens every November, 
And this year they honored Cicely Tyson. They honored who looked unbelievable and was fabulous. And she's turning 94 next month. And that's ridiculous to even comprehend because she looks like she's like 50. You have uh, Marvin Levy was awarded. He's the first publicist to ever get an award. Um, you had Lalo Schifrin who wrote the theme song for among many other things, uh, Mission Impossible. That was his most famous composition. And then you had Kathleen Kennedy and um, Frank Marshall, who were also awarded. They received the Gene Herschel Award. Now, um, these ana- names are announced at the like in October, and so it's this event where um, then the studios go and buy tables, and they bring their big Oscar contenders with them. So Disney was there. They had the whole Black Panther cast there. Um, Universal was there. They had the Green Book people there. Uh, Stars Born, we said. Netflix had, you know, a few tables. They had Roma, the cast from Roma. They had Alfonso there. They had Susan Beer, who did Bird Box. So they had a presence as well. And um, then it's kind of scattered throughout. You have... You have really big names who showed up for the content for the honorary Oscars. So you had Oprah there for um, Sicily. Shonda Rhimes was there. Quincy Jones was there. Like those people were all there because of who was being honored. Harrison Ford was there for Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. And same with Matt Damon was there for them as well. So you had you had a smattering of really big stars that were only there for the people being honored. And then everyone else was kind of working the room. It sounds like that with the Governor's Awards moving off the telecast, like it was kind of frustrating for those of us who say we'd watch an eight-hour-long Oscar ceremony. But they have created this whole event that's not televised, but it is the Academy. It's a chance for all of these people to get out in front. It sounds like it's been kind of a net good for the award season, which kind of gets more unwieldy and crazy from here. Yes, I think so. I mean, I'm I'm assuming that the people who received those honorary Oscars would have rather done it in front of a lot, an audience that was not just their peers and that was millions of people. I'm sure Cicely Tyson was looking for her moment a little bit bigger than what she got. I think for everyone else who <laughs> attends it, who's not in that position, it's a really nice evening. Nicole, I'm curious to go back to the Bradley Cooper thing. I was talking to someone recently um, who's in the industry and she was saying like, I don't know why, but it, whatever campaign he's running, he's running it for director, not for actor. He should be running it for actor. That's where he's going to win. Um, and now he's not going to the, this, this, you know, sort of kickoff really to the to the heavy campaigning season. Is there a too late to start campaigning or does he have a lot of time? I mean, I always wonder how much the campaigning really matters as far as the schmooze factor goes, because those people in the end who are voting sit down, put their DVDs into their players and watch their screeners. And I don't know how much they are actually affected by the, oh, well, I met Bradley last week. I still don't know how much it matters. Um, and he is clearly not running. He is, I do think he is running that director campaign. I think he should be running an actor campaign as well. Um, I don't, I mean, he, they're throwing a big event on Wednesday. Warner Brothers is four stars born, and I'm sure they're inviting a ton of Academy members to that. And maybe he decided he wasn't going to do both. Um, I know he did a Q&A last night with Krista and Krista Smith, our um, bureau chief, and she did it at, um, it was for SAG, I think. So th- he is doing some things. I just think he's trying to limit what it, that is. I don't know the strategy. I don't really get it. Was there anyone else who surprised you with either their presence at the Governor's Awards or lack thereof? Um, well, Clint Eastwood was surprising, but not really. I guess he shouldn't have been. He was there to present to Lalo Schifrin, and he gets up on stage, and it was I felt like we were at the Republican convention because he started – he refused to read the teleprompter. He said he couldn't see it, and then he 
demanded that Lalo come up on stage with him so he could chat with him. Lalo was kind of confused. He's an older man, and it took him about five minutes to get up onto the stage. And then he gets up there, and Clint just starts making small talk with him and asking him random questions about his career. It was very strange. And then Lalo is trying to give his speech, and Clint's like, you could just not give the speech. It's all right. And Lalo's like, no, I I really want to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make my speech. So... He wrote the whole speech. You gotta let him give yeah, it. Yeah, let me give my speech, man. I can read the teleprompter. I've been practicing. So that was a little strange. Clint Eastwood might show up as a contender as well, though, because the mule is kind of coming down the pike. And I feel like everyone's been trained to see a late in the year Clint Eastwood release as a possibility. Did that come up at all? It didn't come up. I mean, I think everyone is waiting to see what it is because, you know, he makes so many movies and he just keeps making them. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I mean, that, that's a great trailer. So... It could go. I don't. Who knows? Maybe that's why Bradley's not running an Oscar campaign, like acting campaign. <laughs> the win supporting actor for the mule. He's waiting for the mule. Yeah. <laughs> so Nicole, beside Lady Gaga, uh, you mentioned that Marielle Heller was kind of being cornered by people. That Willem Dafoe kept having to like stand up and give his spiel about why everyone has to see at Eternity's Gate. Uh, who else was kind of uh, the the most popular kid in the room besides Lady Gaga? Well, and then, of course, you have Oprah, and there's Anita Hill there and Shonda Rhimes. So, like, that, there was so much power in that center. (laughs) It was really pretty amazing. You had, like, the Black Panther. The whole cast was there. Um, I saw Chadwick Boseman talking with Mahershala. I mean, everyone's kind of roaming around, and you see a lot of the – all the studio heads are there. So Donna Langley's there from Universal, and Scott Stuber's there from Netflix. Ted Sarandos is, of course, there, and he's definitely holding court. Um, I feel like Hugh Jackman was stuck standing next to Tom Rothman for a lot of the night, so I felt badly for him. (laughs) That was maybe just my impression. I mean, it's kind of a crazy thing to walk through because, like, everywhere you turn, you're like, oh, God, and there's that person. No, there's that person. Um, So it's a lot. And always, Steven Spielberg is always the center. And it felt like a Steven Spielberg night because you had his longtime publicist being honored. And you had Frank Marshall and Kathy Kennedy who met on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he told this very hilarious story about walking in on them making out on the couch when he thought they were all just, like, this trio making movies and they were, like, you know, coupling up. So it was definitely a Spielberg kind of evening, too. And you could kind of see his overall power over the, you know, the whole Academy at that point, too. Don't feel too bad for Hugh Jackman. That's what you get for inviting Jared and Ivanka to your birthday party. We have to talk more about that. (laughs) Nicole, what was the buzz? Like, what were people talking about? Did did you learn anything about who the frontrunners are in any of the big races and picture director or the big acting categories? No, I feel like it's a night that's not really about the horse race as much as it's kind of like the first gathering where everyone's seeing each other before any of the, everything's been drawn, you know, all the lines have been drawn. The one, you know, Vice had just screened the day before and that screened really well in Los Angeles and people were really into it. So Adam McKay was there. I saw Amy Adams there and they were definitely, there was a lot of attention around them. Um, but I just think that that was because it had just screened. Um, as far as like how the rate, how the, how it shakes out in the race yet, I still felt like those people aren't the ones who are going to be like, you know, making those kinds of claims. I mean, you have like cute things where you see Alfonso Cuaron talking to like Bo Burnham and Elsie Fisher from eighth grade. And that, you know, is just a crazy moment for those people. But, you know, they're not like making odds at this point kind of thing. Right. 
Got it. Is there anyone who you in particular want to just keep seeing for the rest of the season? Who seems to be having the best time? Oh. Is anyone having fun? Uh, of course, Bo Burnham like looks like is the happiest guy ever, right? So he and Elsie are this like little ta- ragtag team. Um, and I think they're just happy to be included. Who knows how long they will be included. I think he could. they could get screenplay for sure. I don't know if it'll go far, farther than that for eighth grade. But I think they're just happy to be there because it's so unexpected for them. I think Mar- the attention on Mariel Heller and, and Can You Ever Forgive Me is great. You know, they all, they look like they're having fun at this moment because this, that moment on Sunday, no one was going to lose. So no one was anxious or worried or anything. So Nicole, as we uh, send you off into your own Thanksgiving holiday, what does everyone in LA spend the Thanksgiving doing? Is it just totally screener catch up time? Like everyone's just screening as much as they can? <laughs> well, they'll usually, it seems like every Thanksgiving, there's usually a movie on the Saturday or Sunday that they're going to screen for us that we've all been waiting for. You know, that's like, I was expecting Vice to hit this weekend because that's kind of how they do it. But so since they did it earlier, um, I don't know. Maybe people are just going to help clean up the fires. Who knows? <laughs> oh, God. Well, Richard, that's what Vice is doing in New York, right? Like, it's screening for everyone for the first time on Sunday? Yeah, they do this classic Sunday after Thanksgiving. It was Phantom Thread last year. It was Into the Woods the year before, you know, whatever. So that's when we're getting it in New York. And then we're getting Mary Poppins, like, two days later. Nice. I, I'm very curious as to what you think, Richard. We can talk about that for a long time after. I have many thoughts. <laughs> I'm excited. Well, Nicole, thank you for joining us and for taking time away from your schmoozing and uh, rubbing elbows with famous people. We look forward to hearing much more about your adventures out there uh, for the rest of the season. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Nicole. Happy Thanksgiving. Okay, so I think as we talked about a little bit last week, uh, this week of Thanksgiving is a really a prime time for either if you have screeners to kind of force your family members to watch stuff or drag your family to theaters. Um, and we talked about Green Book a little bit in this context as something that seemed like it would be a real all-around crowd pleaser. It, it opened limited last week and will be opening wider this week and did a little bit worse in limited release than I think some people expected. It's still doing just fine, but it might not be this giant crowd pleaser at least so far that people were expecting. Did that surprise you guys too, just looking at how it fared and on 25 screens i don't know how much that limited thing really affects a movie like this which is you know kind of more meat and potatoes mall multiplex kind of movie but when i saw it in toronto and when we saw it kind of in our little discreet ways it plays differently and we well me maybe cynically was like oh here's how i imagine this movie will play to the masses or whatever but the more that I've talked to, quote unquote, the masses, I mean, I'm talking to people in New York City, so it's not exactly uh, middle America, but like, everyone's like, oh, that looks corny and dumb. There's not a lot of it hasn't been a ton of excitement for it. And I find that then I'm the one telling them that they should be excited for it, because that sort of will then fit my theory or whatever of the movie. So I don't know, I, I think that like, maybe the kind of permeation of discourse about race and social justice and stuff like that has gotten to the point where a schmaltzy movie like this can, that that really panders a lot to the sort of race dialogue doesn't really actually have much oxygen to breathe right now. Joanna, as the uh, dispatcher from the heartland, as we frequently talk about you. Yeah, Bay Area. How's Green Book faring? No one's talking about it. Zero. I don't know why. I agreed with Richard's theory uh, when we discussed it earlier. It seemed like the kind of movie um, like, I don't know, Hidden Figures or something like that, where it's a movie that everyone is talking about around the holidays, wants to see it, feels uplifted by seeing it. And yeah, it's just not permeated the conversation at all. It's fascinating. It seems like it just might be out of step with the times, right? I mean, I think um, 
this notion that like, oh, racial divisions can be solved through just like being a good person. It's just not where everyone's heads are at in this country right now. You know, there's there's so much there's sort of like too much actual stuff going on for that to feel like a, a like a nice Sunday escape or something. Right. I mean, maybe yeah. that's just what it is. It's like it's like an old fashioned idea of what people would want and they don't really want it right now. Yeah, and I think that everyone was much more excited and galvanized by like Black Klansmen or Sorry to Bother You or these other stories that tell a more urgent and contemporary, even though Black Klansmen said in the past, contemporary feeling way to capture what's going on in the country right now. I think you're right, Mike, that maybe we've moved past this and that would be nice because there, I mean, it just seems kind of comfortable in a way that I don't know that we should be comfortable right now. I also I'm I'm kind of wondering, you know, because you brought up Hidden Figures, Joanna, like, and I don't really have an answer to this, but like, with Hidden Figures and The Help, is there a difference that Green Book is about men? Yeah, I was just thinking about this. I'm just thinking about maybe who, who wants to go see a sentimental, you know, supposedly uplifting movie, who can then marshal their partners or families to go see that? Like, I don't know, maybe there is something about this not centering on women that that affects this sort of appeal. I don't know. That would be really interesting to track, especially as it goes to wider audiences, since from 25 screens, it's kind of hard to to gauge a broader pattern. But I think you, I mean, it, you would be totally right because Hidden Figures had kind of race element to it and also gender division and like about equality in the workplace. That's stuff that kind of it felt more multi-layered in a way, uh, even though I think Green Book has, you know, other things on its mind besides just the Jim Crow South. Right. Well, Green Book is about like a slovenly white man. I mean, he's the, he's the set, he's really the lead. I mean, Ali's character is close to being the co-lead, but you know, it's it, it begins and ends on Viggo Mortensen. And I don't know, maybe people are sniffing that out in the trailer and they're like, I don't care about that guy. Well, I'm just waiting for Green Book to then rally and make like $50 million this Thanksgiving weekend and we'll all be totally wrong. Um, but I wanted to talk about another release this week that I feel like has also been a little bit quieter, at least from our end of talking about it. Uh, Creed 2 is out. Uh, it is the sequel to Creed, which I think we certainly talked about because it was it was a big hit. Michael, it seemed like for a while, like Michael B. Jordan might get a nomination. Sylvester Stallone did get a nomination and almost won. Um, Creed 2 is not getting the same kind of buzz. It's not directed by Ryan Coogler, which I think is a big difference. Should we be considering it more or is it just going to kind of be like michael b jordan's still a star let's campaign for black panther creed 2 is a help on jordan's path toward a supporting actor nomination for black panther um i would be surprised if i mean i think that creed 2 from i have not seen it but from everything i've heard it's good he's great in it people love him um but i i don't know something tells me it's going to get a little bit swallowed up in its kind of sequelness and i guess Sigourney Weaver got nominated for Best Actress for a se- for a sequel with Aliens. So there is precedent that that can happen, but I feel like it's rare. I mean, I guess Creed already had the sequel bias, too. Yeah, it's just so easy to assume that this is now... Like, like they've artistically rebooted the Rocky franchise, but presumably it will go back to being really commercial films. I mean, sight unseen, I think that's just kind of the default assumption of like, okay, cool. Ryan Coogler's moved on to other things. You don't, you're not going to have like a sort of artistic person at the helm of this thing. And if they can turn it into the second coming of the sturdy commercial franchise that was Rocky, like good for them. But that's not really an Oscar proposition. I think the Academy has now new rules about you cannot get nominated f- for a film that also uh, features Dolph Lundgren. I think that that's not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> 
I agree with everyone. I think we would be having a completely different conversation if Ryan Coogler had directed this. I think everyone would be a lot more excited. And I think the energy that we saw around Creed, the first one, was um, it was one of those movies where a lot of people were like, nobody wants this. You know, one of those sequel movies where everyone's like, why make a sequel? And then you see it and you're like, oh, no, here's a filmmaker who has something to say. So there's that like surprise that goes along with uh, whatever it is that Ryan Coogler achieved in that film. There's the added element of surprise. This time around, we're like, okay, we know, you know, Michael B. Jordan as Creed is an interesting character to watch. Um, but what more do we really have to say here? And without Ryan Coogler there to say it, I, you know, I don't know how interested I am. Well, also, I mean, Ryan Coogler was the only reason that Creed ever happened. I mean, he personally made it his crusade, you know, to persuade uh, Stallone and all the rest of it. So there was, you know, that, that right, to your point, that felt like a, a labor of love, a passion project for a, a serious artist who had something to say. Um, where not to not to say it's so arty, but like a serious filmmaker had something to say, uh, and and of course they're going to be like, great, let's do another one. But if he's moved on, then then frankly, my feeling is kind of like, well, then what? Why should I spend my time with it? Yeah, especially when uh, you can just watch Black Panther with Michael B. Jordan and Ryan Coogler at home. I mean, if if you guys are dragging family to theaters or want to make them watch something that's available, like what do you think would be a reasonable choice? Like there's a lot of movies out in theaters. There's a lot of stuff on Netflix right now. Creed 2 might be on my list just because it seems like I want to see that more than I want to see Robin Hood. But uh, where would you guys land? I just filed a rave review of Ralph Breaks the Internet, <laughs> much to my much to my surprise. Um, and I know that this is a sort of um, overly used phrase, but this really is a ki- quote unquote kids movie that feels a bit more for grownups. Um, not because it's risque or anything like that, just because the themes it deals with, whether it's um, you know funny jokes about the internet or at, or it's sort of more emotional um, narrative, both feel like they're more for older people and i loved it i hadn't even seen the first one and i just totally ate it up and cried and laughed and and so that's what i would recommend to people honestly sounds great i loved wreck it ralph i'm i'm really really looking forward to this and especially anything that makes richard cry will make me cry i guess i am going to have to be the one to speak up for richard and my collective husband taron edgerton and say that robin hood looks kind of stupid and but really fun so that's might be where i i set my sights right now my wife's in politics, so I might take uh, my wife and dad to see the front runner. Oh yeah! Oh nice! Yeah, I think that's a great pick. And I still haven't seen uh, "Can You Ever Forgive Me," so I would like to. I would like to go see that too. I watched that screener last week with a couple people, and everyone in the room cried. So good times to be had. Is that a parent-friendly film? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. like if I wouldn't say kids would watch it, but yeah, I think you can watch it around your parents and not be too uncomfortable. I don't want to relive when I played the screener for the big sick in front of my uh, mother-in-law and had to turn it off uh, 45 minutes in. I mean, such a risk comes for us all. It's like, wow, there's a lot of dirty jokes in this. I forgot about that. Speaking of um, Can You Ever Forgive Me, uh, one thing about being, I'm in California with my family right now, uh, not that I'm from here, but anyway, we decided to be here, but um, we were listening to NPR and our drive up into the mountains and like they have this whole public radio show in California that's just about entertainment. I mean, imagine that. And along in 
interview with Marielle Heller. So I, I don't know. I just feel like that, you know, that movie just keeps getting a little bit of extra profile as it goes. And I think it's pretty exciting to watch. And having finally seen Richard E. Grant's performance, like I'm fully on this, this train of that this is someone who's been putting in good work for so long. And then you see this and you're like, oh, yes, it's time that we acknowledge all the times you've stolen scenes in every other movie. And this time you do it with like that added bit of poignancy that we look for in a supporting, um, you know, award worthy performance. And everyone at home who hasn't seen With Nail and I, you, it's your job to see it over this Thanksgiving That's your, that's your Thanksgiving. It's that's one of my favorite my, movies of all homework. time. And it's about making a turkey or a chicken, at least. They, you know, right. <laughs> they make a meal. So. Can You Ever Forgive Me? It'd also be a great one to see over Thanksgiving in New York in particular, and in Christmas, too, because it's set in the winter in New York and has this very lived-in feel of what the city is like in the cold months. Um, so you'll walk out of it and feel like you're still in the movie. Yeah, but if you're a writer and you're alone for Thanksgiving and you have no one to be... Do <laughs> Do not, do not go see Ralph Brace the Internet. So please, for the love of God, you will not be in a good mood if you do the other. Speaking of things that maybe are unfriendly for parents but are available to you, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is the new Coen Brothers movie that opened on – it uh, was – in theaters briefly, and then it's on Netflix now. It started last weekend. Um, it is violent and cynical in the way of many Coen Brothers movies. Um, and it's part, some of that can be good and some of that can be bad for you to watch with your family. But I think Richard and I were having a conversation with various other people on Twitter about how it might just be too far over the side of violent and cynical, even for the Coens, for us. Um, but I don't want to sit here and just diss on it. And I'm curious what uh, Mike and Joanna think as well. Yeah, I, I like was like live texting you yesterday, Katie, as I was watching it at home. Uh, the, the benefit of a uh, Coen Brothers movie on... As well, the Coens were probably furious about you doing that. That's exactly how they wanted me to watch it. I felt as you did, I think that there were ups and downs, or I think that's how you feel. Um, and it ended on such a strong note for me that I was able to forgive a lot of the earlier resistance that I had. I really liked the final installment. And I think that's often true of sort of any kind of little anthology thing you see is if they like, if they land it well, um, you can, you can forgive some earlier things that didn't sit so well with you. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful project like you see these like wide expansive shots of like prairies and canyons and mountains and all that sort of stuff like I was just like slack jawed watching how gorgeous it was um and you know it's it's all the before it's fun to see how exactly like dirty and bedraggled and bearded um you know some of your favorite actors can get in this <laughs> anthology but like well Tom Waits walked on a set like that though he was just ready yeah that's how Tom looks all the time I agree that I don't know in terms of a tonal mix it seemed to be very down, like down even from some of their most dour work. And I don't know if this is just the Coens grappling with like the world we live in now. I know they've been working on some of these stories for 25 years, but the, you know, it's like, it serves as a sort of, we, we talked about this Katie affair. It serves as a sort of O. Henry esque, um, you know, little short story collection with little twists at the end, but nearly every twist is devastating. So you're just like waiting for everything to fall apart and be really sad at the end of every single thing. And and how can I endorse someone watching that? I don't know. What did you think, Mike? Uh, I thought, first of all, when we're not in a, at risk of giving spoilers out to the audience, I'd like for you to explain to me why that last um, segment is supposed to be good, because I that was my least favorite of the entire thing. Um, I really liked the first one. Um, I really liked the one with Tom Waits. I thought that was pretty perfect. And, and without spoiling too much, it seemed like slightly less dark than some of the other ones. Um, and I really liked the Zoe Kazan one. I, I do think that like a lot of good new, you know, contemporary westerns, I, I do find myself enjoying that kind of being 
that that kind of thought experiment of like what would it really have been like you know um horrible it would have been so horrible way out there with no support system and just totally on your own and so that's kind of enjoyable and it's it's gorgeous to look at and i i think most of the stories are very sort of well crafted but yeah three out of six is not the greatest batting average as you know for a movie that's two hours and fourteen minutes long. But I, I'm also prepared for you know this to end up being like the greatest movie of all time because that seems to happen with the Coen Brothers a lot. I mean, I remember seeing The Big Lebowski and not actually getting it at all in the theater, and now it's probably my second favorite movie of all time, which you know is sort of is what it is. Yeah, I was telling Katie I felt the same way about Inside Lou and Davis. I walked out of that being like, what a depressing pile of crap. I hated that. What kind of bad movie were they in when they made that movie? And then it just sat with me for years and became one of my favorites. So, well, that hasn't happened for me with that one yet. But maybe <laughs> I should watch it again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, there's some great performances. The Tom Waits one. I I, I would say if you're gonna do anything just watch the tom waits one and because that is a truly great thing that's sitting there right right inside your netflix box i would say that for the zoe kazan one but yeah the zoe kazan one is great too there is something too, like being able to be like just like watch 15 minutes of cohen's and uh go about your day but what's interesting right is like this whole discussion of whether this was ever supposed to be a tv show or not and the cohen's say not the rumor was that it was all of that but like you know given that we're recommending recommending individual vignettes like just watch the tom waits ones just watch the zoe kazan one that's like how you recommend someone watching a season of black mirror oh just watch the john ham one don't watch the other ones and so like should you know would it have been better i'm sure the cohen brothers really didn't want it this way but like is there a world in which netflix releases this as episodes even if like an episode is 10 minutes long, 15 minutes long, as some of these vignettes are. Uh, and then you've got like a little season. Um, I don't know. Is that better? Is that worse? It, you know, is it just easier to find when you're scrubbing along? And you're like, oh, there's Tom Waits. I'll stop here and watch it. You know, I think the problem is with, you know, with that, Joanna, is that like, if that's the case, then no one's ever watching the James Franco one, you know, and I so I think that like the better ones exist to support the worse ones, which is not really the best thing you can say about, uh, you know, of a film, if you want to call this a film. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I got the distinct impression that they are that these were discrete, standalone, full, equal length episodes that they then pared down. And I think that the mix is off. What do we think about the Franco thing? I read in someone's review saying that was the best one. And I was like, wow, there really are just uh, everyone finds something different in Cohen movies. Some people love Stephen Root and just want uh, any kind of Stephen Root experience that they can have. It wasn't my least favorite, but I thought, I mean, was he cast after the whole controversy that or, or, or did this predate? the controversy because it actually in a weird way felt like it could be some kind of crazy commentary on James Franco's like me too problems where he just keeps getting punished over and over again. But I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I was just dreaming that if it is, it's kind of a dubious, potentially unfortunate commentary, but, um, but, that's how I feel about, um, I don't know about the timeline of Franco, but I will say like when you showed up, I was like, uh, all right. Um, but, um, the, the Liam Neeson one, uh, which is probably the most meal ticket, was probably the most depressing um, one. I, you know, watching that, and I was told I was not alone. In this, like, that seems like an indictment of 
um, either superhero. Netflix. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Netflix, Netflix and superhero, like either superhero movies at at studios, major studios or Netflix, like subpar binge worthy programming. And I like couldn't believe that that was like airing on Netflix. I was like, this seems to be the Cohen. Like, did the timeline go that the Coens were doing with with this with Annapurna and then Annapurna sold it to Netflix sort of like against the Coen's wills in any way. Like, I don't, I don't know exactly the timeline of this because the Coen's have said like Netflix is financially supporting artists in a way that studios aren't interested in doing anymore. Like the studios are only interested in superhero movies. They have this like, you know, very stereotypical quote about like superheroes are ruining Hollywood sort of thing. And, um, and Netflix is the savior of that, which like, I, I don't believe Netflix has that intention, but like, I don't know. What do you think? I was being glib saying that it's a critique of Netflix. So just to basically set it up is like in this in this um, segment or whatever you want to call it, you've got this uh, traveling theater uh, where this guy with no arms or legs uh, recites kind of famous poetry and speeches and things and then ends up getting displaced by something that's much stupider and lower brow than that. Um and and probably is superhero movies and i and i think that you know my experience at telluride with netflix was people were basically like you don't get it netflix are the only ones actually shelling out real money for artistic endeavors by filmmakers you know whether that's a bubble or not is can be debated but so i i, can, I imagine that annapurna with the you know, consent of the Cohen brothers said, like, these are the only people who are going to give us enough money to make this crazy thing that you guys want to make that doesn't fit into any um, structure that's familiar. Yeah, if we are considering this a film uh, and thus eligible for film awards, I would throw Harry Melling uh, into the supporting actor mix. He plays the unfortunate bard uh, person who he delivers these poems and speeches so beautifully and I think is like one of the 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 core sort of emotional centers of the whole Buster Scruggs experience, um, despite being, you know, in service of a really bleak story. I just wanted to mention briefly that if people really like this movie and they and they they cotton to the sort of the bleak Western tone that also has a bit of sad humor to it. Um, a very overlooked movie that traffics in much the same thing is a Tommy Lee Jones movie called The Homesman that came out, on, I think it's on oh, Netflix yeah. now, with him and Hill. Love yeah, the and I th- it really no one saw it. And it's this exact sort of sentiment. Um, and I just kept thinking about that movie while I was watching Scruggs. And I think it honestly uh, more successfully captures that feeling than Scruggs does. And I think the Coens have more successfully captured that feeling of the West better in things like True Grit or No Country for Old Men. Um, so yeah, this uh, this work reminded me of better works, let's say. Can I just really quickly, in my predictable lowbrow way, say that the other treat of Harry Melling is the fact that he played Dudley Dursley in the um, Harry Potter films and i just did not see i was like why does that face look so familiar and that was not the answer i was expecting when i googled it so yeah i I learned that face that fact from reading the new yorker review of buster scruggs so it's not so lowbrow give yourself some credit okay Well, let's end by talking about one more movie that you may or may not want to take your family to see this Thanksgiving, but is worth seeing for sure. Um, We're going to share Richard's interview with Yorgos Lanthimos, the director of The Favorite. But first, let's just talk a little bit about it. It's been making the festival runs. I think we've all seen it at various festivals. It's finally out. Uh, We've talked a bit about how it's got these three uh, really lead performances from three actresses and how they've divided it up in the Oscar race. Um, See it for Olivia Coleman. See it for Rachel Weisz. Why should people go see The Favorite? Because it's... 
big fun period costume palace intrigue drama but like one you've never seen before um i think it's tone it's sort of it's style i mean it's lanthimos you know he says in the interview that he'd always wanted to do a period piece and it's really fun to see what he does with a period piece um especially one set you know in the history of his adopted country of the uk um i also think that it's a rare movie like 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 that 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 is very queer in its sensibility and in its plot, and yet doesn't draw big arrows pointing at that and saying, look at us, we're being progressive. It just exists in a sort of very organic way. Um, and I really appreciated that. And I appreciated that I didn't, you know, that like, I didn't expect them to go into that stuff as much as it does. And, and, and um, you know, so I don't know. It's one of my favorites of the year. No pun intended. It's not really like this, but it's in a similar mode to Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, where it's taking like a really kind of skewed off kilter look at a um, at like a sort of a classic somewhat Shakespearean scenario. In other words, it's it's a queen, it's courtiers, it's the competition for her attention. Um, but it's done in this really mad, modern, absurdist, you know, kind of uh daring you to be grossed out or or confused or angry by what you're seeing and and yet also it, it also works on the kind of terms uh, of of a regular royal drama too like it's not it's not so alienating that you're not kind of invested in the characters and you're not brought along with the plot but you it's it's kind of more entertaining than like the crown or something because it's it's crazy it's it's off its head a bit so and, and the performances really are so great that that's why we've all been debating like who should be lead who should be supporting you know who's going to get to be in their own lane who's going to have to share because the three women uh, lead actresses or the three actresses at the center of this are just so great I also don't want to stand here and give credit to a movie that's about women to a man but I also think Nicholas Holt is a legitimate reason to see the movie unto itself he's so great as this kind of sniveling scheming uh, member of the court uh, I don't understand how British royalty works so he's just he's just there uh, he wears a lot of powdered wigs and just has constant uh, insults for all of the characters I think he's amazing in it yeah and speaking of the men um, Joe Alwyn who you know a couple years ago had his big debut with uh, the much maligned now Billy Lynn's long halftime walk has had an interesting interesting redemptive arc in, in smaller movies this year. He plays a really horrifying character in Boy Erased. He plays a more likable character in The Favorite. He's also in Mary Queen of Scots. Um, so Talk about what we know him best for, Richard. Oh, he's Taylor Swift's boyfriend, or what was, is, I don't know. Probably still is. We'll see. But yeah, so there are a couple of male performances in it. But yeah, it's really about those three. Um, and they're they're so good. I think I talked to Yorgos in specific about Olivia Coleman, who is... The you know best actress hopeful from that movie, um, but um, he's he's interesting to talk to. Let's hear how that turned out and listen to your conversation with Yorgos Lanthimos. Well, I'm happy to be seated here in a lovely hotel room with the great Yorgos Lanthimos. Yorgos, thanks for doing the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with kind of the origin of the film. It's my understanding that the favorite has been in the works since kind of before even The Lobster. Is that right? You were with the project on and off for a few years? Yeah. Uh, well, I first read the original screenplay by Deborah Davis around 2009. So it was right after I made this film called, called Dogtooth. I was immediately intrigued by the by this story. This, these three women, we started developing the film for for quite a few years. So it took us nine years almost to to get it made. It, it was mostly uh, a process of find, finding the right writer to work with, uh, and of course, at the same time, we were doing other films as well. 
casting in order to get it together as we wanted. It took some effort to have everyone available at the same time. So um, it, it took a while, but I guess every project uh, takes as long as it takes. What about it made you want to stick with it that long and make sure it got made? When you read the script, what, what jumped out at you and stuck with you? It was pretty unique. Uh, I, haven't, I hadn't really read anything like it, reading about these three women that at some point in time had such power. The fact that it was a very intimate story about them, but at the same time, their relationships and their behavior and decisions and even their mood affected the lives of so many other people. It just uh, felt like uh, something that I wanted to explore. Uh, also, the fact that it was a period film and I hadn't made a period film before and I I wanted to see what would that look like and sound like if I put my hands on something like that. Yeah, it just stuck with me and we kept uh, working on it for many years. And this is, I think, your first film where you haven't written it. And so what was that experience like working with uh, someone else's words and then turning them into your own sort of signature kind of Yorgos Lanthimos film? Well, it wasn't very different. Just as we said before, I really worked very closely with Tony McNamara that we developed this screenplay together for, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a very close collaboration. We stayed with it for many years. We really tried to come up with a tone and a world that that felt unique and something of its own, although it was based in on real people and taking place in a specific period in time. We at the same time we tried to create something that in many ways felt different and created a, a world of its own. How careful did you feel like you had to be with the history? I mean, this is, you know, you live in the UK, this is UK history. Is it far enough in the past that you can kind of take liberties or what was your approach to that? I think there's that, the the fact that it was so long ago and there's many things that we don't really know if even if we were trying to be loyal to to the history. But at the same time, I never really felt the need to make this film, you know, as a history lesson or as a documentary. I always knew that I wanted to be inspired by the the story and the real people, but it was certain that we were going to take a lot of liberties uh, with the story, with the characters, in order to create a, you know as much as complex and complicated women as we could that felt complete and that the story would have elements that made it feel relevant to our times. We didn't really feel any weight to be loyal to history. And I want to also ask you about casting. You know, you have Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, who you've worked with before. Uh, and I think for some people, maybe some American audiences less familiar with her, the wild card here is Olivia Coleman, who's great. You know, she's been in so much great British television, and um, she's about to be Queen Elizabeth in The Crown. How did she come aboard? Did you have her in mind for a while, or was she a surprise to you, too? When the script was almost finished, I, I immediately started thinking of her. I had worked with her before uh, on The Lobster, and I, I knew of, of her work, of course, uh, and I think she's basically one of the best living actresses. So um, it, it was, you know, it was very straightforward for me to think of her for this part. I think that I probably wouldn't have made this film uh, without Olivia. I mean, I couldn't think of anyone else that, that would play this part. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those roles or one of those performances that, you know, some people might call brave because she really puts it all out there and it's not like a pretty role. She really goes to some extremes. 
what are conversations like while you're filming about that stuff? Do you just sort of trust her to take it as far as she wants to? Or what's that dialogue like when you're planning a scene? I don't really discuss a lot with the actors in an analytical way. I mean, um, what we try to do is work uh, a lot physically before we start filming. So we had a long period, like two, three weeks of rehearsals where we worked together, all of the actors, and tried things, played games, fooled around, did exercises, learned the lines, but through physical activity. So the lines wouldn't stick with them in a particular way, in a, in an, in an intellectualized, self-conscious way. So I try to basically free free them from the text, in a sense. Uh, so they're they're able to try things while we're on set and filming that they they can be bold. Basically, I try to allow them the space to do whatever they have in mind, to whatever the moment suggests is right. And then I just try to just steer them towards the right direction with very simple things like uh, uh, things about pace or volume or uh, things like that. A lot of performances in your films have a certain quality that I feel like carries through a lot of your work. It's maybe sometimes a little presentational. It can be a little bit arch. Is that something that comes hard when when working with an actor to get where you want them to go? Or I guess if you cast well, they can just know what you're saying and and can do it. I really don't say much to the actors about how they're supposed to, you know, perform. I think a lot of it has to do with the with the material and the language of and the tone of the screenplay. I think they get it and whenever, you know, something is not right, they hear it and I hear it and then you can, you know, you can adjust. But there's very little conversation about how things should be. Uh, a lot of it is instinctive. A lot of it is about being there and being present and being free uh, without having very decided ideas about how each scene or each line should be told and performed. One thing when I've talked to actors, especially actors who've been in period pieces, is that they say that when they finally put that costume on, for women a lot of times is when they finally put that corset on, or, and when they get on the set that looks, you know, like the 1700s. So to that end, I would imagine that the design, the costume design and production design is, is really crucial to this, you know, working in a period piece for the first time. How involved are you in this sort of granular detail of that stuff? Or do the designers just kind of present a sort of final vision to you and you can sign off on it or not? I mean, are you very detail oriented in that way? Um, I'm, I'm detailed in, um, in showing the, the direction we're going. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite, uh, outspoken about the things that I don't like and I don't want to be part of the, of the film. Uh, and then I think I, again, like very much like with the actors, I choose people that I think and bring, uh, things that will surprise me, that would, would take things further than we, what we had imagined. But I do try and create a consistent universe, you know, within every film. And so that goes for how it is filmed, the costumes, the production design. Um, so we, we had a, a lot of discussions in the beginning of, about where this film should go and what we wanted to do with it. But then, you know, people go off and bring their ideas. And uh, usually it's just uh, the universe expands. What was the most unexpected thing about doing a period piece like this. I mean, you've also involved a lot of mud and animals <laughs> and blood and all this thing. I mean, w- technically speaking, was there something that kind of stymied you or that was harder than you thought it would be? 
I mean, the whole thing, because there's so many things that you don't notice when you're not making a period film that are around you that do not fit to the period. So uh, there's a headache all of the time of a light switch somewhere in a corner or a cable or, you know, a painting which is not the right period. And, you know, there, there were a lot of things that you don't necessarily think of when you haven't started filming. Uh, so that's quite challenging. Uh, and the fact that we were working in in historical spaces, locations, and we had to be careful with everything. We could barely touch anything. And, uh, you know, there, there was a specific number of candles that we were allowed to light on in every location. And we did shoot the film with natural and practical lighting. So we needed a lot of candles. There are practical things like that that you don't necessarily think of when you're uh, writing the screenplay or when you're watching a period film. Well, you've consistently broken the old film directing adage about never working with animals. I mean, you're doing the lobster now. These these rabbits. Uh, how were the rabbits on set? Were they were they difficult to work with? No, or? actually, they were surprisingly easy to work with. I don't know exactly why, but they just hopped around all in the right places. I guess a lot of them look very similar, so continuity wasn't so much of an issue. I guess if you look closely, maybe there are some continuity issues in there, but it just felt right. Most of the shots, they just hopped around where they had to, and it felt organic and fine. Uh, and I, I didn't really expect that. I thought it was going to be, you know, another headache with all these rabbits, but um, it was fine. I guess the the ducks were more difficult, but in a, in a way that because they had to do a very specific route when they were racing and the fact that we had to figure out how to film them without blocking their way or without scaring them, um, that was quite complicated, but large quantities of fish did the job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, all that detail, you know, when you zoom out, I mean, it really creates, like you said, a really thorough universe for the film to live in. And in terms of that universe and its universality to today, where do you see the favorite sort of falling in this very tumultuous political moment that we're in, both in the UK and in the United States um, and elsewhere, obviously? What do you think the favorite has to say about right now? Well, I guess it raises questions, which is, you know, what I try to do with all of my films. I, I don't try to say specific things or preach anything in particular. But one of the reasons that I was interested in making this film, it was that it felt relevant even back in 2009 when we started developing it. In that respect, and observing the fact that a lot of the things around politics, human beings, relationships, how those affect the whole world, they, they don't really change even when centuries go by. That's, you know, quite interesting to observe. And when you have the the distance of presenting it as a period piece, uh, I think a lot of a lot of things are revealed more clearly. When I first saw the film in Telluride, I you know we were a couple months away from a pretty crucial midterm election in the United States, and I was thinking, you know, I don't want to spoil the ending, but there seemed to be a parallel to me anyway about these people who keep throwing themselves at the feet of Trump and then getting punished for it and, you know, but kind of just keeping on doing it over and over again. Do you see the film as something about that sort of subjugation to power? I mean, do you think it's a, a hopeful film about these relationships or? I can't say it's a hopeful film. I think the the hope within the whole experience of watching it and thinking about it is that you are you are invited to 
to think and wonder about these things and uh, see how you feel about them and how they relate to your world and to your your view of things. Uh, so in that way, it is very relevant. Obviously, we never intended it to be relevant to specific situations like Trump or whatever else, because again, we started making this you know many years ago. But it is kind of well disappointing to see how relevant it is and how unchanged. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> disappointing. Yeah. Now, I've talked to some people like at these film festivals who've seen the film, really like the film, and. I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but it feels in some ways like your most accessible film. I mean, because we're, you know, inured to costume dramas. And this is a very much a Yorgos Lanthimos costume drama. And yet it's in a mode that we're more familiar with than, say, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which feels like a pretty unique kind of thing. Is that something you think about at all? Like, what audience is this for? Um, not at all. Uh, I mean, I, I just, you know, try to be involved with things that I'm interested in. Again, we've been going back to it, but the fact that I started developing this right after Dogtooth, was, which was 2009, shows that I don't really have a plan. I don't have, you know, I don't really think about, you know, what should be next in relation to how people receive the films and perceive my films. I just um, try and make things that interest me, uh, that take me to a different place, that I that enable me to... Uh, explore things in different ways and do things different than I did before, hopefully do some things better than I did before. So it's all about that. And then hopefully, you know, the films have a life of their own and people perceive them in different ways. And some of them are more accessible, some of them less. I really have no control over that. So I think it's it's better if you just let it go and uh, leave them uh have their journey uh, instead of trying to figure out how people are going to react to them. Something we talk a lot about on this podcast, just because we're we're sort of focusing in the sort of mechanics of the of a, of a movie season, is film festivals. And your films tend to premiere at film festivals. And those experiences that you enjoy, I mean, obviously, can is one thing because you're not getting Q and A's with the audience or all that kind of immediate feedback. Whereas, you know, at New York Film Festival, you might you might have that. Do you enjoy either experience more than the other, or 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 what is your festival experience like usually? I can't say I enjoy them. <laughs> it's a it's a very stressful you know time for me. You know, it's the first time you you know let the film out into the world. Certainly, you're very nervous about how you know people are gonna perceive it and receive it. So yeah, it's basically very stressful <laughs> times, but. You know the 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 enjoyment is the the fact that they are invited in those festivals and you're amongst these other great filmmakers and you know you get to share uh, the experience with you know other members of the crew and people that worked on the film and you know that's the the the, the nicer part of it and then you know hopefully people are gonna enjoy the film and appreciate it and uh, it it will have a longer life. I know you're you're awfully busy with your own film, but like in the course of this year and these festivals, have you gotten to see anyone else's work that you've particularly been into this year? Well, it's 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 really hard when you're going around uh, to and doing press to to see other people's films. I I only got to see a couple of films in Telluride. I saw uh, Alfonso, Alfonso Cuarón's film, which I really liked, and I saw this documentary that I've very much enjoyed uh, free solo but yeah I haven't I haven't had the chance to see a lot 
Well, I'm glad we're on the same wavelength because I've been raving about both those movies since <laughs> Telluride. Well, before I let you go to more press, uh, I'm curious. You said you you know you were curious about what a, a period piece would be like just to make it. Is there any other genre at some point in the future that you would like to explore? Um, no, I mean I don't think about it beforehand. And even with this one, you know, I read the story, which was interesting, and the fact that it was a period piece, it was an added bonus. So I don't start from the genre. Uh, but I, and I, I think a lot of my films kind of flirt with genres, but are not necessarily part of them. Um, so I think, yeah, depending on where the next story takes me, there, there, there's probably going to be some proximity with, uh, a, a certain genre. I want to see the musical. That's <laughs> musical. Okay, I'll put it in the. Okay. I'll put it in the oven. Good. Well, in the meantime, everyone should go and see the favorite. It's really wonderful. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks, Argos. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you for listening. Hopefully, you're on your way to some excellent holiday locations and eating. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a rating and a review and keep telling your friends and all of that. Uh, we're also at VanityFair.com where you can read Nicole's piece on the Governor's Awards and us writing about all of these films. Um, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Jarothis. And Mike. Mike Hogan with an underscore. And Nicole is at Nick NIC Sperling. You can find her too. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and we had additional engineering help from Otis Gray. And this week's award for what we hope Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway say when they hand out Best Picture at the end of this year's Oscars goes to Nicole Sperling. Everyone's the winner. 